This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to a fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. It's me, Damian Mason. I've got a great program for you today. We've got the COO, Chief Operating Officer for Wayne Farms. Wayne Farms is a very large, uh, vertically integrated poultry producer and processor here in the United States of America. And we're going to talk about avian influenza. If you're paying attention at all, you've probably heard about avian influenza. I'm recording this the first full week of April, so I want you to know that anything that happens after that will be new to post this production right now, but I want you to know that this is a big story. I'm, uh, I'm sitting there, Kevin, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm flying in a plane and I'm reading articles. I'm like, Oh, this is bad because we've already got a constricted supply issue because of processing. And now we're going to talk about destroying and eradicating flocks of poultry because of this avian influenza. So anyway, dear listener, got a great program. His name's Kevin McDaniel. He is the COO of Wayne farms and he's been a client of mine and uh i am so glad to have him on here for his expertise thanks for being here buddy thanks glad to be here I'm- avian influenza bird flu i've heard about it before we've had outbreaks of before um this is i think h5n1 is the uh the letter designation we give to this strain of virus and i'm reading about it it's in minnesota and we get it in the flock and then we destroy the flock of turkeys and then it's in iowa and then you told me in preparing for this recording that just this morning u.s department of agriculture announced that we've got problems in texas and in north carolina tell me about the disease first then we'll talk about where it goes well, the, what we have here is, as you said, it's avian influenza, uh, which targets the avian species. It is an influenza virus like any influenza, but it is specific to avian species. And uh, the issue or the main issue is by high pathogenicity. Uh, you can have low pathogenicity, which is not um, a large mortality issue, doesn't cause issues um, such as the high path. The high path can go through um, flocks very quickly cause a lot of mortality uh, in the flocks, and the um, of course you lose those individuals. Those whether it be for meat producing flocks, egg layers, whatever it be, you'll lose those. But also uh, the implications are um, our exports uh, is a big issue and a big concern of the industry, uh, all of the poultry industry. Um, is when this happens, it restricts your exports because other countries are all guarding, trying to keep, you know, keep it out of their country. And and they put on restrictions for that. But the, um, as we talked early on um, pre this recording, that that is the issue that we face is the high pathogenicity AI and how it's affecting. And we had this back in um, 2014 into 2015 was the last true large outbreak we had in commercial operations in the United States. 
since then, we have not had any activity to this level, but now this is the new 22 outbreak. Um, and, and that's what we're dealing with as far as any commercial operations. Okay. So we, is it safe to say this came from Asia, like every other bad thing that comes to the United States of America? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say Asia. We know it's commonly found in migratory fowl. Okay. And if you follow the flight paths of migratory fowl, um, that, that you can almost draw a map of the migratory fly paths in the U.S. As birds come from um, South America, Mexico, back to Canada, they, you know, they've been making that migration now. So that's why you're at a heightened risk right now is those birds that go up Mississippi flyaway, the Delta flyaway, up the East Coast. That's where you see these spots occurring and then spreading from there. Um, and we don't, we don't talk about it. It doesn't make news, doesn't make your show uh, during times when they're always doing monitoring of wildfowl and they find it. Um, and it doesn't make, but when it makes the headlines, when it is a major event like now, when it's in commercial flocks. So we've had it, like I said, we had commercial, we had outbreaks 14, 15. It's been, we've seen it every year. We knew it was there in migratory fowl. And now it it's actually seated itself on some premises here in 22. But um, I wouldn't necessarily say, I can't say it's an Asian deal. It travels yeah. uh, with those migratory fowl. Yeah, and by the way, again, I want to remind the listener, and you know, please share this with your non-ag, uh, ag or non-ag uh, folks. The big deal here, the big deal is we've already got a squeeze on poultry because of worker shortages and inability to get stuff through the plants. So that's why I want to, if you're saying, if you're listening to this saying, why are we talking about bird flu? We're talking about bird flu because we've already got enough problems. Ukraine, Russia, uh, shortage of carryover on all of the grain stocks, you know, as skinny of supply as, as uh, we've seen really in our grain stocks. And now we're talking about something that might constrict the supply of of, of uh, poultry, when you go to the grocery store, it's going to be more expensive. It might be some availability issues. That's why we're talking about this. We're going to get to that, but let's talk about how it spread. Yeah, I had read that also. The Mississippi flyway, the East Coast flyway, the Atlantic flyway, I think they call it. So it's in these wild ducks and geese. And who monitors that? Is that a USDA, Kevin, or is that a fish and wildlife? And then they tell USDA and say, hey, we're seeing really bad outbreaks of avian influenza in these wild Canada geese, you know, or mallard ducks or what have you. And then is that what we we, we see happening? And then the question, of course, is after it's detected, how the hell does it get into a poultry barn that's a confined poultry barn. So I guess tell me about the detection and then also the, the uh, spread. Well, the detection is done through, so they'll do work just as you said, cooperation between USDA and fish and wildlife. And what they'll do is they'll do krill or monitoring surveys among uh, folks hunting migratory fowl. And so they'll take samples from those birds that have been harvested and do sampling. And then also if they do have a, um, I know out in um, Washington and over on the far west coast, there was a eagle found dead, and they monitor they they did uh, surveillance testing and found that it was carrier of avian influenza. Um, so there'll be dead fowl as well as harvested fowl uh, through hunting that they do their surveys on. But back to your question, our our main defense is our own biosecurity. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and what you see, and you can see the pattern in it, if we get that deep talking about what's been affected the most, but what you see is long-lived uh, long flocks or um, production that has a longer lifetime out in the operation. That's why you see like it takes longer to get turkeys to market than it does broilers. Uh, and turkeys seem to be more susceptible. And then um, on these uh, commercial layer facilities, what we're talking about there is true production of table eggs, where you have multiple age flocks, you have large farms there with a lot of different ages and them holding those birds for their lifetime laying eggs, they seem to get exposed. And once they do, you have a large number of birds that have to be eradicated because of the size of those operations. But um, truly to answer the question, it all boils down to biosecurity. And when we do have some flocks that have exposure to the outdoors, there's, there's one vector right there. If there are birds that are allowed to go outdoors, whether it, um, so you're moving birds from brood house to a grow house and a turkey operation, and they have to be exposed to the outdoors. Some of these operations that are free range or allow outdoor roaming, you know, they're out there, they're open. And all you have to have is wild um, excrement from a wild fowl on the ground. Or then the other thing you have is biosecurity through other vectors such as rodents, um, insects, other things. You, you really have to work on your biosecurity. Um, and one thing we work on um, and we have to stay on top of is visitors traffic in and out of farms, making sure where those people have been, um, if it's absolutely necessary to have that person on your facility, do we know where they've been? Do we track their whereabouts and, and where they've been? And do they wear protective clothing and those such things? Yeah. So you just said a lot of stuff there. That's really interesting. So uh, my, my, my listeners are, are all, uh, you know, across the gamut of agriculture. And some of this is probably very new, even to people that are in ag because poultry is a small, really it's a big industry, but it's not a lot of players because there's a lot of vertical integration. So there's not as many people that are involved in poultry production that are even within the business of ag. And they're like, wait a minute, I didn't even think about that. That as much as the grocery shopper that goes to Whole Foods, they want birds that are able to go out and play outside, you know, and they're called free range or even uh, cage free, but they have to be, to be organic. I think Whole Foods makes the, I think or Whole Foods policy is for them to sell it as organic. It also has to be able to go outdoors. You just really, are presenting a biosecurity issue because as you said, a flock of geese flies over uh, my farm in Indiana and takes a crap and, and those organic birds are outside. Now you just introduced them to avian influenza. So those birds are going to have a greater risk, but here's the big thing. Um, it gets into the flock anyhow, like you said, uh, turkeys that just moved on a Minnesota Turkey farm because Minnesota is the number one Turkey producer. Last I looked they're taking them from a brood house to a grow house, meaning to the listener, that means they're going from what? From about a week or two old then to where they get put on feed to be taken up to butcher weight, right? Right. Yeah. You're looking at up around 21, 28 days and they'll move them over to the grow house. Yes. And so you said something about the long life to take a broiler chicken to wait from a, from the time it hatches until it gets butchered is about 45 days, right? Average, average 45 to 49, yes. And then on a turkey, 
from the time it hatches till it's on the Thanksgiving table, how many days does it take? Um, you're looking 12 to 16 weeks okay. uh, for hens and then on out for your larger toms. Okay. So they seem to be getting hit worse as a percentage. Is that what you told me the turkeys are? Yeah, that's what the, the data shows right now. There's been much more uh, commercial turkey flocks been affected. And you think it's because they are older or because they have that exposure of being moved? They go outside and all of a sudden when they go outside, they, they somehow grab, grab this virus. Well, there's multiple reasons, um, but you do have the um, exposure. You also have more susceptible um, immune system than what you see in the, in the modern day broiler. And then, um, like I said, they're there on the premise much longer. You're, you know, you're, trying to defend them for a longer period of time. Okay. So answer me this, Kevin. Uh, I put out in my book, Food Fear, which is over my shoulder here, that uh, animal animal agriculture gets blamed for antibiotic resistance um, because we use way less of it than we ever used to. 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago, we used a crap load of it. You used to put tetracycline in all the water lines in your poultry barns, Right. Right. And we don't we don't do that anymore. But the reality is viruses are not treatable by antibiotics anyway. So there is no treatment for a virus, even though the, the suburban house mom that takes her children to the emergency room and says, my son has a cold, give him some antibiotics, which I think is a real issue, still happens. But we don't do that in our flocks. So we're not treating them and we're not contributing to the antibiotic issue because of stuff like H5N1. What are we doing to treat it? Are we doing anything? Well, currently there's no, in the United States, there's no vaccine available. And you'll read, you'll read in some of the coming days, if you hadn't already seen it, this has brought the topic back up again about do we develop a vaccine? Do we approve and license a vaccine to be used in the United States for even influenza? Other countries have tried this. The problem you get, if you do vaccinate for even influenza, and then you have exporting countries that test and they want to test and they want to see what the uh, environment looks like within our flocks, all our commercial flocks. It depends on the test, but you're going to pick up um, and show that there was exposure to avian influenza. So then you have to be able to differ differentiate. Is that from the wild virus or is that because we introduced the vaccine into those flocks? That's been the limiting factor of any of the commercial industry, whether it be chickens, turkeys, cage layers, anything to introducing a vaccine. And then we also have to have one that has efficacy to truly work and, and combat the avian influenza. But I'm sure as we've done with everything, if we, if we truly figured out a way around it, you would see that we could do that. It's just, we've got to get around the export. We're so dependent on exports in our industry. We have to come to an agreement on that of uh, deciding the difference between if we could differentiate between the two. So you just said something really important. Uh, we, if we even did have a vaccine, if then that was detected in the stuff that we're shipping to another country, the receiving country could say, wait a minute, we detect H5N1. You say, yeah, that was through the vaccine and then it could be rejected. And so that's why we stayed clear of vaccinating or even developing a vaccine. You think that that's been one of the limitations thus far is how to differentiate between we're a huge producer of poultry and this, uh, even ducks, my home state of Indiana, I think is number one or two duck producer, although most folks don't eat a lot of ducks, at least not in the United States. But um, we produce a hell of a lot of chicken and we produce a hell of a lot of poultry, uh, turkey and even ducks. 
how much of our stuff leaves the shore? How much of our stuff goes uh, overseas? Oh, well, I'd have to pull that number up. I wasn't prepared for that. Oh, that's fine. That's no, fine. But it, it's, it's a large number. If you look at um, – um, in the United States, uh, typically we're not, we don't consume the amount of dark meat that we need. So the back half of the chicken, in essence, we don't consume at that rate that we need to sustain the production we have. You, in the U.S., the uh, normal consumer looks for the white meat, breast meat, the tenders, the wings, that, that's their principle. We're seeing much more of an, an increase in um, some of the thigh meat and some of those things, which is a back part of the chicken. But we're dependent on countries such as uh, Mexico, Angola, China, other ones that are heavier consumers of dark meat, and then other parts, parts that are not largely consumed in the U.S., such as actually poultry feet. Um, Paul's business is a big exporter into the Asian markets. It's an interesting thing when you go into a foreign country and you see chicken feet and you about turn your stomach, and you're like, I, good God, I never thought about that. But yeah, that's a, a huge thing. By the way, I'm a thigh and drumstick guy. I actually, when Lori gets chicken breast, I said, as long as I can put it on my salad and drench it with enough blue cheese dressing, yeah, I'll eat chicken breast on my salads. But anyway, if I'm going to eat just regular chicken, it's a thigh and, a, and I love dark. I love the dark stuff, the thigh and the drumsticks. Um, and it's also interesting. You just mentioned the word Angola. That's a country I haven't heard mentioned probably in 20 years. So uh, there's some odd places. A bunch of our stuff goes overseas. And, you know, there's this concern, are you importing a disease? How many countries do you think have the, an avian influenza issue right now? Because it's coming from wild flocks of waterfowl, as you say. It can't just be happening in the United States, right? No, we've, um, we've seen it just like these migratory fowl. You can follow them on their flightways. So there you've seen um, a European, Asian, they're called the Eurasian variant. Um, you see these different ones. We've seen it in Mexico. Um, yeah, it's common to all countries um, within that reason, even currently like Canada has it. Of course, you have all the migratory fowl going up there, but there's already three provinces that have po positive cases in Canada. But we see it in um, countries we trade with and other countries, um, but kind of everybody's in the same boat. We're all fighting the same thing poses almost no risk to humans, according to my research, but it, it, and it doesn't even kill the birds. It reduces egg production and causes mortality eventually, but it doesn't kill them all. Does it? If, what, what, what happens when a, when a flock, I say, I got a flock of birds, broilers or layers, whichever you want to call it. Uh, I get this disease. What do they do? Broilers for, I guess, wouldn't be an egg production issue. So let's talk about layers first, egg production. Uh, you'll see a um, um, large decrease in egg production. Um, that, that'll be one of their markers. Um, then you'll see some mortality. Um, so you have certain levels that um, raise awareness immediately, but you'll see the production drop. Then you'll see mortality to follow. And then the broiler side is the same thing. You'll see mortality. This high path, it does pretty quickly result in mortality. You'll see higher mortality rates immediately. So even in a layer in a layer operation, if I'm looking at my stats and what's a big a big laying barn might have what like a hundred thousand birds in or something, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so hundred thousand birds should be producing like what ninety five thousand eggs a day or something, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, because not every bird every day, right? And all of a sudden, if I go in there and it's down to like eighty eight, I'm like, oh, we got a problem, and then it's probably going to be pretty promptly as soon as I see that I got an egg reduction issue, I'm going to start seeing dead hens. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. They'll stop laying, they'll cut the production, then you'll start seeing mortality. But one thing, um, even for your listeners to know that we all participate in the commercial industry, um, turkey side, the broilers, um, we do um, routine monitoring all the time. So what we want to do, we want to find it. We want to isolate as quickly as possible. We don't just wait till there's more tally. We're continuously monitoring, doing surveillance on all of our flocks. And we, we all um, sign up to do that. And we do it as an industry to try to prevent this. Because the best thing we can do is identify it, um, quarantine that area, um, do a lockdown in that area. And then you don't, you can actually arrest this. We've learned that from the past. The worst thing you do is turn your head from something and not know where it's at. So we all monitor on a continuous basis. Tell me then also, uh, when I'm reading that we've eradicated birds, that's the only, and we do it because we want to prevent spread, correct? I mean, so we say, crap, we got this. And one of our, because a lot of these poultry facilities are huge. This one barn has it, but it's not in the other four barns we're just going to kill all the hens in this laying barn and make sure there's no exposure to the other four barns to protect. That's why we eradicate a flock. Correct. Yes. That's the provision is if you have high path on a farm, you eradicate the entire flock on that premise. And then they draw monitoring. They do a zone, um, a close zone within, um, let's say like five miles of that. And they go out and monitor any, poultry in that area to see if there's been any spread then they move to a 10 kilometer area from that so you have two different surveillance zones that we monitor those areas to try to we try to arrest as quickly as possible stop all traffic to and from um and once in the u.s once it becomes such as this a true high path case that's we um send the samples it's certified through ames iowa through the uh, national lab, and then it's confirmed it's a lockdown. And so really USDA comes in and it takes over control and they stop all movement to and from that facility to try to arrest it. So what I just said isn't even accurate. If I have it in one barn and I got five barns on my operation, you're not going to just kill the ones in that one barn. You're going to kill every bar, every barn because they're all with on the same operation. Yes. That's what they're going to do. And the animal rights activists don't like this, but it's the right thing to do to prevent the spread. So we still have protein production for human consumption. How do we kill We kill those birds by gas? We put, we gas the barn. Well, there's different ways uh, uh, that are allowable for humane reasons for uh, taking those birds down. Um, The uh, number one way is, yeah, you'll see um, gas or the, Foaming, some will do it through foam. Um, but yeah, CO2 um, is a humane treatment. Um, some do CO2 and some do the foaming. What's foaming? They actually have a, uh, it, it looks like a foam like you would use to fight fires and you can actually flood. It so it's not water, it's just a foam, but it basically takes the oxygen out of the air. Okay. And, and, take, and that way you can put down multiple, a large flock number um, at the same time. It becomes a lot of work. Now you got to go in there and in a biosecure way, remove a whole bunch of dead hens or dead broilers. And by the way, we didn't say this to the non-chicken people. A broiler defined, Kevin, is? Yeah, meat producing chicken. Young young chicken used for meat consumption. One that goes from a hatchling to a slaughter in 45 to 49 days. Um, 
so anyway, then those things got to be prevented from being exposed to other birds because might the dead carcass still, what, what happens to those birds? Yeah, there are certain provisions. And, and so you go from the federals as well as state authorities on what's allowed in that area. Um, I know back um, several years back in some turkeys operations and different ones, they actually did some in-house composting because the outbreak and to try to not spread and not move the birds off the premises, they actually euthanized the birds through CO2 and then they windrowed or they composted the birds in the facility in the litter. So they used that, that litter area, the pine shavings, whatever, rustles, whatever the material is, they used it as the, uh, the material for the composting to allow the carcasses to break down and then they could transport them after it gone through the heat, killed the virus. So yeah, after it, after it basically <clears throat> rots, Decomp and through decomposition, <clears throat> then the virus is killed. Mm -hmm. Got it. This isn't pretty, I know, but it's livestock production so that we can have meat to eat. And you know what? There, folks, uh, even though uh, sometimes they'll try and tell you six to eight percent of the country is vegetarian, that's actually a big misnomer. It's about one or less percent because there's a lot of vegetarians say they're vegetarian, they still eat chicken. Okay. Um, numbers, Kevin. Uh, you told me before we started recording how many you had read commercial layers. What are we talking about? Are, is it a couple percent of our production that's now already impacted? Is it less than 1%? How, how much is it so far and how bad can it get? Yeah, right now, I mean, you're still at less than 1%. Um, but what I was looking at thus far, the, as of this morning, we have 24 states involved that have um, recorded an incidence of the high path even influenza in this current outbreak. Uh, we're up to 86 total cases uh, spread over the multiple states. Um, but uh, the number, what I'm looking at right now is in commercial turkeys, there's um, been a million three uh, euthanized, 830,000 commercial pullets. Uh, commercial broilers were right, were right at around 2 million, a little less than 2 million uh, broilers have been euthanized. Commercial layers is the one that surprised me is we're approaching 13 million, 12.9 million commercial layers. And that's, that's a big number, but for the person that doesn't know about the poultry business, on a percentage basis, getting rid of 13 million, eradicating, euthanizing 13 million egg-laying hens, on a percentage basis, that's still less than a one percent of all of our hens in the country. I would say so. Yeah, I don't have I don't have that number in front. But of it's me. not. It's 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 significant because it's a big number, yeah. but it's not on a percentage. Yeah, basis. the population it takes to maintain the uh, laying production within the states. I know you can't predict because you don't have a crystal ball, but based on your experience and uh, knowledge and history in the business, what usually. Do we get through this by June and then the migration's over and then the thing goes away or does it, is it a prairie fire? Uh, we've, we've seemed to get better and better each time we have this. I would definitely, I'm hoping by June, uh, to answer your question, um, a warm spring, early summer is our best defense. As soon as we can get some warmer weather, um, many sunlight days, that helps. Um, but we, we need warmer weather. We need to move on and, and that'll help with this. Um, you know, the migration, you know, that that's, 
that part's occurred. You've got lingering, and then you've got some birds that are resident birds that are continuing to be carriers and lingering in those zones that may still, you know, that still have the virus. I don't think you totally, it totally leaves from that. You have those carriers. But one thing I didn't, um, we didn't talk about that people lose sight of is um, these backyard flocks. There's over 35 cases in backyard flocks. So that's why we really try to educate and get the word out to those folks that, you know, the, that may have the backyard, the mom and pop, have a few layers here and there, but 35 flocks have already been eradicated. And that's where we see that we can make the biggest impact is try to educate those people and make them realize that the risk is there um, and, and try to prevent it from those flocks as well. Well, what's interesting, you said 86 cases in the United States as of April 4th, 2022. And then of those A6, 35 of them, so we're talking damn near half or more than one third of them are mom and pop. I've got 12 hens in my backyard. Yes, there's only, yeah, and we're only talking about 2,700 birds in those 35 flocks thus far. But so what's interesting is the, again, the, the average consumer in suburban America would say, I don't like those factory farms, those big industrial. We're doing an amazing job at our facilities like you run that have a million birds on in one location compared to the person that has a hundred birds in their backyard. Yeah, I'll say so. I mean, that that's our, I mean, that's our livelihood. We've got to keep these birds, things secure, um, biosecurity, keep diseases out. I mean, it's our livelihood and that's, that makes the birds do better anyway, better, a healthier bird is a better bird. Uh, so we don't want any disease, much less an influenza virus. What's, um, what's your prediction? Do we, do we lose, a percent of, uh, or does it become like, could it be like a 5% deduct or reduct uh, reduction on, um, on available those commercial layers? First off, is that eggs that I'm going to eat? Or are those commercial layers eggs that are going to become more birds that become broilers? No, those are eggs. Those for table egg production. That's, that's the one that I see looking at these numbers. That's got the largest impact thus far is table egg production. So we could throw another 25 cents on a dozen eggs because of that? I'm not sure you'll see that kind of effect. I mean, we're already in such an inflationary range now. Um, I, I don't have that data to know for sure, but that number was alarming to me to see that that many layers have been euthanized. Um, on the turkey side, you know, we'll see how it, how it plans out with them with the amount of birds they've had to euthanize but uh, you know like i said a lot of it is just precautionary trying to make sure we don't have spread and isolate the location you you didn't think that it was going to be you're still you're still being you're not you're not pulling the panic button you're not pulling the thing of go out and stock your fridge with uh, all the poultry you can buy because it's not going to be that bad you're you're convinced that we're going to see uh, it's it's not it's not good but it's not going to be that we're going to put we're not the inflation that's happening already is worse than what this is going to do is what you're telling me. That's, I mean, that's my position. Um, right now is, um, my main concern right now. I mean, we're always trying to stay out of it, not, not have the virus influence us, but main concern right now is our, how it's going to impact exports. Um, myself and, and my other colleagues within the broiler industry, that's the main concern right now is how it's going to affect exports. So your, your bigger concern isn't on pricing or even uh, being too devastating to supply. Your bigger concern is we won't be able to ship our stuff. <clears throat> right. 
Uh, contractual arrangements is how most poultry is produced, meaning you don't raise all your birds. <clears throat> you have farmers, let's say Damian Mason has 200 acres in, in uh, Indiana, and I want to put up uh, six or eight barns, and it's going to be a part-time job for me, and I get the chicken litter to go out and spread on my fields for fertilizer, and then you get my birds, and you pay me so much to raise those birds. Isn't that how the arrangement typically works? Yes, sir. And then I give you those birds uh, that you actually gave me as chicks, and then uh, they are scheduled and slotted into a processing facility, and it's all very well organized and orchestrated. Let's say all of a sudden my barns get this avian influenza, and then we have to gas or foam these birds. Now I got to go in there and clean up and do all the headaches of all that. Then my barn's back to a week or two normal. Are you going to stick birds back in there? Do I take the loss? How does it work on the on on the cleanup and the loss of uh, those birds? Do I have to eat that? Well, you, the way they work it with high path AI is like I said, if it's truly confirmed and uh, high path even influenza case, USDA comes in, takes control, um, eradication. They monitor the the euthanasia of those birds. They also monitor the cleaning, disinfecting. And there's a certain parameter so many days post um, cleaning and disinfecting that barn stays empty before it can be repopulated to meet our guidelines as well as some of our export customer guidelines so that, you know, it is worthy and you're able to um, export that product. And also it affects that county, that region, that state as how they are deemed to be released from certain restrictions by certain government agencies that we ship to. So we try to follow all that protocol. To basically answer your question, there are indemnification funds available that we make sure of and, and the broiler industry, the turkey industry, all participate in and work with USDA, but there are indemnification funds to try to take and offset that loss to that producer once it, but it has to be a confirmed avian influenza case. Yeah. We've had things in the past where somebody uh, may have jumped the gun and say they did euthanize a flock because they thought they were sick, but you have to have a true confirmed avian influenza case right. to qualify for those indemnification funds. Well, Kevin, the point is, it, it, again, for the mom and pop, uh, they got 80 hens in their backyard. That's bad. But if I got, a few hundred thousand or a million birds, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars of the, of the birds and then of the lost revenue and then of the cleanup and then of the, yeah, the lost revenue on the days that my facility has to sit sort of sterile, right. I guess I'd call it. Uh, you know, you're talking about a lot of money. Exactly. And so there's an, there's indemnity funds that are set up like that you pay into, or it comes through a government program or it goes between industry and a government program. Is that what I'm hearing? Both, both industry and government programs participate in that, but that's our whole deal is to hold the grower whole and try to keep him from going in debt or having to suffer all that loss. I mean, you know, the company, the integrator will suffer because they're the ones that have the feed, the birds, all that invested, but that grower also has those lost income from that flock, the time he has out, um, the disinfecting, the clean up, all those things. So, yeah, we, we try to balance that out within the program because we realized that several years ago. <clears throat> uh, 
Yeah, that's interesting. No, uh, we see this stuff, you know, we, we've had it in pork, uh, different things like, for instance, you know, the, the swine flu or whatever the, that deal was. And then we've got the avian influenza. We don't see it in bovine. Is it because bovine are more outside? But then again, that's where it happened in the backyard flock. So why is it that we don't see this with cattle so much? Well, I mean, you don't you don't have this type of an influenza type virus um, affecting um, cattle, but you, you know, you do have certain diseases within them. Um, if you think about it, foot and mouth disease, things that have happened in the past, that were major outbreaks. I, I remember once I had a, a, um, a friend of mine that was a veterinarian within the Texas livestock group. And he, you know, he traveled to other countries because we had eradicated foot and mouth, but those countries still had outbreaks of foot and mouth, you know, and had to euthanize those, entire flocks of, you know, herds of cattle because of that, you know? Right. So you could see something such as this in, in, the, in cattle industry as well. You know, I, speaking of the cattle industry and hoof and mouth, that's one thing that I'm actually more concerned about. I spoke at a veterinarian's conference several years ago, Kevin, and maybe you already knew this. There's only some ungodly low number, like 8,000 livestock practicing veterinarians in the country. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazingly low number. Now, obviously Wayne farms, you have them on staff, right? Because you have veterinarians on staff, but if you go to vet school, which is really hard, it's harder than medical school is my understanding. It's difficult to get in. There's only like 30 vet schools in the country. My alma mater Purdue has a, as a well-respected one. I know. Um, all right. If you go to vet school and say, Hey, you can open up, um, in Schaumburg, Illinois, and just take care of cats. And rich people are going to bring their cats in there. And you, you might get clawed, but you ain't going to get the shit beat out of you by a, a, a wild steer. <laughs> and you don't have to be in a hog barn all day uh, where it stinks. And you can make five times as much money. So we got this real dearth of, of veterinarians that can even treat stuff. So I guess my answer, my question is, are we prepared for this? Do we need to, you talk about indemnity funds, do we need to start incentivizing, subsidizing kids to become large animal or livestock animal vets because it's not glamorous. You're in a chicken barn all day versus hanging out and taking care of rich people's cats. Are we prepared? Yeah, I feel like we are. I mean, we've got, I mean, what you say is true. That That's one thing we've faced through the years in the industry, but you do see tr people truly follow their passion. I mean, you know, just like you and I ended up in agriculture, we could have done something else, but it was our passion to be in it. And you, we we have a large number of veterinary um, students coming out every year, but they want to be in this industry, whether they grew up in it or they develop that passion by being introduced to it. But we we have our own veterinary folks on staff, but we also use um, so with um, in comparison with some of the state agencies, state labs, state veterinary groups that we're, where we do business and also some of the suppliers we do business with, some of the pharmaceuticals and other companies, they have vet technical staff such as that that can lend support. So it in, the, in a, the way the industry is, I know within the roller industry, turkey industry, uh, commercial areas as well, all these we talked about today, there is a large network and available expertise to help us. So I, I feel confident on that front. We've got it covered. We've got some really, really smart individuals that can help us. You know, you're just not going to be the alarmist. I want you to come on here and tell me, I want you to come here and tell me that we're all going to starve. There's not going to be any birds and we need more vets. Actually, the thing about vets, we do need, we do need to consider. <laughs> yeah. We do need to consider as an industry some sort of thing where we incentivize through financial means 
kids to come out that and be livestock animal vets because if we had a hoof and mouth outbreak like you talk about in the cattle thing the 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 middle-aged woman that's been treating cats in schaumburg for her vet practice not being in any way mean is not going to be able to do us much good on the on the, on the feed yards uh, right. side of treating bovine understand what does concern you you don't think we're going to see a big spike um, because of a shortage, you think it's going to affect exports the most. Um, right. You think we get through this. You think we'll see a blip, which might add, but on top of the inflation already, if we were going to see poultry prices up 18% or whatever they are in the last 15 months, this isn't going to make them go to up 30 or 40% is what you're telling me. I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I hope I'm, I hope I'm right. Um, my main concern right now is that we do what we know how to do. Um, from biosecurity, we do the right things, arrest this. I mean, we deal with it. We just need to deal with it and keep it at the level it's at, not continue to have it spread. Um, and then, but it, I, I hope I'm correct. I just don't think it's going to be that big of an impact. Um, but I, I do, you know, I'm concerned about certain states and how it's going to affect us with exports, um, I mean, you said what scares me. I mean, my main concern right now is input cost for grain, you know, for our industry. Um, like you and I've talked about before, you know, it takes almost two pounds of grain for a pound of meat. I mean, um, so we're dependent on a lot of grain, uh, corn and soybean plantings are our main concern right now, where we're going to be on that globally. You know, we can't just look at the U.S. anymore. we got to look at the whole globe and we know what's going on over there. And uh, that – that's the biggest um, poker play right now that I know of that we're dealing with. Got it. So, yeah, I think this is good for uh, everybody in ag to hear that uh, it's a concern. It's you think it's on top of the inflation issue is bad, but the inflation's worse. You think that the grain, uh, our short stock uh, that we have right now, which is interesting. We haven't typically been here in my whole life. <laughs> We've usually talked about problems of having almost you know too much surplus and you think that we get through this so uh anything we didn't cover see you're just not an alarmist you're just you're just all even you're just all even keel all steady well you know but but it is a big issue and i gotta say this if we were a third world country or if we if we had our entire poultry production the way some of the do-gooders sign waivers and petition signers at whole foods want we'd be at greater risk this is where modern agriculture wins out because we do things right between USDA, between Wayne farms and between our protocols. If this was just everybody had their 50 50 birds in the backyard, we'd be in a hell of a lot worse shape. Yeah. I feel confident. We have, we have good people in place and throughout all the industries we've talked about uh, through the commercial egg side, turkeys, broilers. I mean, we've got some really good people and I see that we'll, we'll rise up. I think we'll, we'll get on top of this. It's just a, um, I hate that it's happening, but we, like I said, we knew we continuously monitor. We watch for this. We know it's a risk factor each and every year. When you look at, at this time of year, that this migratory foul issue is going to cause this and, and yep. we just have to warn against it. All right. So the one that you and I both are more concerned about, because I do think it's a big issue when they put me on media and I get interviewed by the news I tell them that uh, this whole inflation you were told was transitory. They've been saying that for nine months, and I see it getting worse. These meat prices aren't going to go down, and they're actually going to keep going up, aren't they? Yeah, I think if if you look on every front, like we talked about, I've, I've 
our input costs. We got to look at grain. We got to look at all anything related to oil. So all those things, whether it be fuel, plastics, packaging, all that, and then everything back to labor. You you talked about that before because you and I had that conversation a few months back. But um, labor is the one that's kept me up so much. Trying to get enough people that want to come in and work work in the different um, areas of our company. Um, yeah, I don't I don't see a immediate change right now. Um, I don't I don't have any indicators that's going to change it right now. No, I, I think we get worse and, and it could be another five, 10% on food prices by the end of this year. And folks don't, and the government won't say that, but I see it, it yeah, absolutely being that way. You, sir, you do yeah. too, don't you? You do yeah. too, don't you? I can't argue with you. No, <laughs> but where the indicators point is that things aren't going to correct themselves right now. He's not an alarmist. He did give you good data. He told, told you about avian influenza or bird flu. It's not contagious to you. Don't stop eating chicken. Remember that happened to the poor pork producers when they kept calling it swine flu, swine flu. So everybody stopped eating pork. And it's like, no, 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 it's hurting the pigs. It doesn't do anything to you. So don't stop eating chicken. For God's sakes, keep eating chicken. His name is Kevin McDaniel, Wayne Farms. You can go to Wayne, like the guy's name, farms.com and check them out. And if you have eaten at Chick-fil-A, You've probably eaten a Wayne Farms product, am I not right? Yes, sir. We're a large supplier to Chick Fil A. And I, I heard the Chick Fil A person speak at your conference in October that you hired me to speak at, and I thought it was fascinating uh, listening about the dollars per Chick Fil A uh, restaurant that they uh, they do something really well, and they and they do it probably because of the chicken that's coming from you. Yeah, I think I think service is top of their list. No one will argue they they provide the ultimate service. Kevin McDaniel, thanks for being here. Chief Operating Officer Wayne Farms. Talk to you all about avian influenza. Share this with your non-ag and ag friends alike because it's good information about something they're going to hear about. They'll hear more about it in the media and they'll probably get misinformation. You can get great information right here. Also, check out the work I'm doing at Extreme Ag. Extreme Ag is a consortium of high-yielding, success-minded, forward-thinking farmers that are doing product trials, experimenting with new stuff, and I'm covering it all on the videos that I produce for them. You can listen to videos and audios by going to Extreme Ag. There's no E on the front of it. ExtremeAg.farm. Check it out. Kevin, thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you. Thank This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. 